So uh, one of the things that I like to do occasionally, this is something I do every day or anything like that, but I, I sometimes like to go to the little Alexa thing in our kitchen and just say, hey, what happened on this day in history? And I don't know if any of you ever have any interest in that. I'm not a huge history buff. Sometimes it's just fascinating to me. And I was looking at some of that earlier this week. And here's what I discovered. Actually, today, which was super cool, uh, today, September 27th in 1908, right? So I'm not a mathematician, but that was over 100 years ago, I think. In 1908, on September 27th, Henry Ford's first Model T left the plant in Detroit, Michigan, which I think is pretty cool in a number of reasons. One is some of y'all work for Nissan. All right, y'all are thankful for that. I promise you that you're thankful for that, right? Because you got a job today because that happened in 1908. So I'm sure you're thankful for it. One of the things that's cool about that kind of thing for me is I love to study the leadership of people in history. It's super cool to kind of watch how people made decisions and what made them tick and why they did the things that they do or why they did the things that they did, all that kind of stuff. And as I was exploring that about a guy named Henry Ford, I'm fascinated by something about him. And it's this, he was obsessed with the future. Right? He was obsessed with the future. Henry Ford was driven by what he believed about the future. Henry Ford was fully convinced that everybody will make decisions every day based on what they believe about the future. For him, it was a vision of this thing called an automobile that people could get in and drive and navigate through the places they want to go in the world. And so it drove him every single day. Now, let me ask you a question real quick. Now, Henry Ford was fully convinced that what people believed about the future would determine what they did that day. However, at the same time, he was not convinced that people could predict the future. He was not convinced people could predict the future. In fact, one time he was noted as saying that children will never learn what's going to happen next year in a book. They'll never learn in school or in a book what's going to happen next year. But he was convinced that he could create a future, even though he didn't know the specifics of the future. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus, here's what I love about what Henry Ford says. I fully agree that what we believe about the future will determine what we do today. What we believe about the future will determine what we do today. But here's the catch. I believe where he's wrong is that we do know the future. We do know the future. I want you to think about how you would probably function a little bit differently if we applied that to this whole pandemic thing we're living in. Right? If we knew how this whole thing is going to play out, now some of you in the room probably think you do and you, you've got all kinds of theories about how that's going to play out and that's fine, that's, that's yours. You might be right, you might be, but we don't know for sure. Right? If we knew how this whole thing was going to play out, it would probably affect what we do today. Some wear, may wear masks, some may not because of what they know about the future. Some, some may get a vaccine, some may not because of what they know about. Some may take all their money out of the bank and stuff it under their mattress, right? There's all kinds of ways. If we knew what was going to happen, it would affect what we do today. In 1 John, as we continue our series this morning in 1 John called Verified, looking at what John says that marks real, true, authentic believers in Jesus, we're going to be reminded of this. All right, we're going to be reminded that we ought to live today in light of the last day. Not the past, but the last day. The day when we stand before God. The eternity that God has promised. We ought to live today in light of the last day. And as we look at these verses, and we're going to kind of work through the end of chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3, and just kind of for a side note, as you read the Bible, just know these numbers in here are something we put in there to try to help find things and locate things and remember things and all that kind of stuff. This is a continuous letter that John wrote, and we're going to kind of work through one of those transitions today, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 2, all the way through 
verse 10 of chapter 3. And as we do, I want to point out three things to us as we think about living today in light of the last day. And it's this, that one, God has called us to a commitment for a lifetime. A commitment for a lifetime, confidence in the end time, and holiness in the meantime. All right, commitment for a lifetime, confidence in the end time, and holiness in the meantime. I want to begin by jumping into to verse, verse 28. Just verse 28 uh, to start us here. It says this, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There's one short verse here, but it's got really two big points that I want to focus on for just a few minutes. And the first of those two points is this, is that verified believers don't just make a a decision for a moment. They make a commitment for a lifetime. Make a commitment for a lifetime. Here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, John uses the word abide. And this is a word that he uses like 24 times in this one short letter, these five chapters, John uses the word abide 24 times. It's this idea that we need to be reminded of, that we should continue, that we should remain, that we should dwell with and in and under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that we should remain in Christ, continue to walk with him. It's this idea of an ongoing relationship. It's this idea that we should be committed to Christ in an ongoing way, in a continual nature, right? Some have thought about the Christian life in this way. Some have thought about the Christian life as, man, when you get saved, the moment you surrender to Jesus, that's like the winning play. It's the end of the game, right? It's right before the final buzzer goes off. It's the winning play. Everybody's running on the field. The kicker hit the field goal, right? Made the last shot, all of that. But really, that is actually the opening whistle, That's the starting whistle of the journey with Jesus because there's been all this pre-work that God's been doing, that pre-game stuff. God's been doing a work in somebody. Somebody gets saved, that he saves them. That's the opening whistle of this journey with Jesus. It's not the end. And so this journey with Jesus requires us to make a commitment for the rest of our lifetime. God calls us to abide in him. It's this continual remaining, continuing in the grind of life, daily remaining and continuing and abiding in Christ. And so first thing I want to point out as we talk about living today in light of the last day is that it requires of us a commitment for a lifetime. But in this short verse here, we find that that it's not just he's talking about abiding here. The second part of this verse, he says, let me look at 28 again, and now little children abide in him so that, right? The second part of this verse says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You see, understanding what God has called us to and remaining in him. Understanding and remembering the work of Christ causes us to remain in him. But we shouldn't just have commitment for a lifetime. When we think about the end of time, we should have confidence. 
We should have confidence. If we're a verified follower of Jesus, a true believer in Jesus Christ, we should be confident when we think about the end time. Oftentimes, what we do when we think about standing before God is we sort of tremble. There's two reasons we might do that. One is an awe, which is a good thing, right? We have this, this healthy fear of God because we know his holiness. The other side of that, though, I think is more common, which is that we get kind of shaky about the end of time and standing before God because we don't have a lot of confidence to stand before him. We don't think we deserve it. We don't think we've done enough good sometimes because we've convinced ourselves that if we do enough, that God's going to be pleased with us and receive us. But here he's saying, you've got a reason to be confident as you stand before God. Because the reality is, is that every single person ever conceived will stand before God. Every single one of us. And in that moment, whether it's when Jesus returns or when we leave this earth, we pass away, we will stand before the Lord. And he will expose everything about us. And for those who have relied on the finished work of Jesus Christ to be the merit by which that God would receive them, he will say, enter into my kingdom, my child. For those who have never trusted Christ, who have faked following Jesus, as John talks a lot about in 1 John. For those that have never expressed their hope and trust, have never surrendered their life to Jesus, have never seen what Christ has done and responded to it through faith, trusting in the work of Jesus, those he will dismiss to a real place called hell, where there is eternal separation from God. A never-ending place of torment and torture separated from God. And the Bible says, as real as that is, as real as the weight of that moment of standing before God is, as the, the responsibility, it seems, that the fear that might kind of well up in us, as real as all of that is, he says that we can approach that, 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 that throne of God with confidence. With confidence, that we can approach the throne of God with confidence, not shrink in shame, but approach with confidence. How then do we approach with confidence? Well, it can't be dependent upon ourselves. I can't approach the throne of God because of all the great things I've done, because it would never be enough. It would never be enough. I don't care how many old ladies I helped across the street. It's never going to be enough. I don't care how much money I gave to the church. It'll never be enough. I don't care how many Bible studies I was a part of or led. It will never be enough. I can't come to the Lord with confidence because of what I've done I have to come to the Lord with confidence because of the work that he's done. However, if we back up to this commitment for a lifetime, we're reminded of this. That as I abide in Christ daily, as I trust in him, as I continue in him, what that does is it should grow my confidence even more because I see the work of the Lord at work in me. God is working in me. He's a, I'm abiding in him. He's, I'm seeing him change me. That should grow my confidence. But my basis of my confidence is built on the work of Christ. As we get ready for that day when we'll stand before Christ, we have to remember the work that he's done on the cross, but we also have to, we should be able to look at our lives and how we're abiding in him. This is how we prepare for that day, but we prepare for that day with confidence, right? I don't know how many of you ladies in the room have ever had a child, okay? I know all of you guys have not. 
All right, I have the complete confidence in that. All right, none of the guys in the room have ever had a child. All right, we've supported our wives or whatnot through that process, but we've never had one. Okay, but my wife has had four children, so we have four kids. And for each of those kids, the, the, the preparation process looked pretty similar. The first one, we were a little over the top because, you know, we were, it was a big deal. By the fourth one, it was like, is it time to go yet? I don't know, right? But, but as we get ready, what you do is you rearrange your house, right? You paint stuff. You buy stuff that you're going to use for a week and then throw away or a day or an hour, right? You load your house or your closet with diapers. You buy these little things that they outgrow in about a week. Right? You do all of this stuff and you get ready. And then you pack a bag, right? You pack a bag. And you get in that bag. Nowadays, I think your phone charger is the only thing you really need for whatever reason. But you maybe take some clothes for the baby to wear on the way home or something. And make sure you got your phone, though, because you got you to get pictures. So, right? so you pack your bag and you get it all ready, right? For two of our four kids, none of our kids were ever born on their due date, right? If you are pregnant or, or hope to be one day, your kid probably won't be born on their due date. All right? Don't build your life around it. It's just not a realistic thing. Okay? But two of our four kids were born quite a bit early, one a week early. Our most recent kid, our one child that was born here in Tennessee, was born about three or four weeks early. Um, and so what was great is that when the day came for us to go to the hospital, matter of fact, my wife had gone to a doctor's appointment. This isn't too much information, I hope, but my wife had gone to a doctor's appointment and they said, hey, you got to get to the hospital like right now. Okay. So we weren't really ready. She didn't have her bag in the car, but I was at the house. I got her bag, made sure the car seat was in the car and I took off to the hospital. And here's the deal. I walked into that hospital a little bit nervous, but I was confident. Because I knew we had done everything we had to do to get ready. I knew we had, I had her bag and all the stuff that we needed to have. But I also had a whole lot of confidence that the person on the other side of that delivery table, that they had done their work. They had done their research. They had studied. They had prepared. They had been trained. They had been to med school. They had done a residency. They had studied and studied and prepared and prepared and practiced and practiced. And on the other end of what they had done, I had a great deal of confidence because of what we had done to get ready and what they had done to get ready, those things collided to build this confidence as we approached that moment of the birth of our child. And I can tell you that this is much like what it means to build a confidence in the end time when we'll stand before the Lord. As we look at the work that God has done to prepare us for that moment, both in changing us over time, and then we look at our faithfulness to abide in Christ that should build a confidence in us to be able to stand before God knowing that he's going to separate his children from those who are not, and we can confidently approach the throne rather than to shrink in shame. We can approach the throne of God with confidence knowing that we are his. And believer in the room, I will tell you that if that doesn't breathe life into your soul, I don't know what will. To know that I can stand before a holy God with confidence because I am his. You know, as we continue in this passage, we've, we've seen, right, commitment for a lifetime. We're going to live in light of the last day. It should breed in us this commitment for a lifetime, a confidence in the end time. But a third thing I want to point out, and really a final thing is this, is that it should produce holiness in the meantime. Holiness. I want to read verse 29 through the first six verses of chapter 3. It says this, If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. You know, if we're going to live today in light of the last day, it ought to change the way that we live today. And I'll be honest, right? As a follower of Jesus, this is one of the things that it kind of, it kind of doesn't settle well with me sometimes. That God has called me to holiness. Because when I think about the holiness of God, and I think that God has called me to that holiness, and then I think about the reality of my life, it just doesn't seem like it adds up. And, you know, if we all took an honest assessment of our lives, I think we would agree to the same. It just seems like it doesn't add up. But as we understand the Bible and it says that God is holy and we ought to be holy as he is holy, it breeds the question, well, then how in the world is that possible? I'm so far from that. How is that even possible? Well, what's beautiful here in the book of 1 John, in chapter 3 especially, what we see is that we get not just a call to be holy, but we're reminded that God provides for us both the motivation and the character to produce holiness in us. That God provides for us what we need to produce this type of holiness in our lives. He provides it for us both in motivation and in character. When it comes to the motivation, what he says here, right, in particular, is that we have a reason to be moved toward holiness. The right motivation for change in our lives, it should never be to impress ourselves or to impress somebody around us, to impress our boss, to impress God, or to make them want us or like us. Our motivation for holiness should never be to get something. It should be because God did something, that's our motivation for holiness. When I think the, about the extent of what God did to save me, to buy me back from sin and death and hell, to pay for my sin, when I think about the extent to which God did went to, to, to reach me, to buy me back, I can't help but be motivated toward becoming like him. When I think about all that Christ has done, when I, when I think about God creating the world with just the breath from his lungs, speaking it, and it all came into existence. And I think about the, the way that humans, people, Adam and Eve is where it started, right? Messed up God's creation, kind of screwed things up, messed things up. Sin enters the world, and there's this ongoing journey of people trying to get back to God. And then God steps into time in the form of Jesus. He puts on flesh. He becomes a human. He lives in our world. And he lives a life that none of us could live. It's a perfect life. He's sinless, without flaw in all of his life, though he was tempted in all the same ways that we are. And it says that he lived a perfect life. The Bible teaches us that he died a death that all of us, whether we have trusted in Jesus or not, we all deserve the death that Jesus experienced, the torture that Jesus experienced. We all deserve it. And Jesus died a death that we deserve. 
He was placed in a grave. The grave was sealed. Three days later, he came up from the dead out of that grave to defeat sin and death and hell. And in that victory, those of us that trust in the work of Jesus on the cross, defeating the grave, when we trust in that work, we then are given eternal life as a gift with God forever. When we understand the extent to which God has gone to buy us back, it should motivate us toward holiness. It should move us to want to be like him. He's given us the motivation that we need. He said, I have done this for you, therefore do this. He gives us the motivation that we need for holiness. As we live holy in the meantime, we should be being changed. And part of that is motivation that comes from remembering the work of God through Jesus. But he also gives us the character because, yes, he, he, he saves us in a moment. And when he does, as the Bible talks about here, he gives us a new name. We're called children of God. We get a new name in that moment. And it's a momentary thing that God does. He assigns us a new name. When he adopts us, as Pat and Ken talked about in the video, when he adopts us, we're given a new name in that moment. However, there's an ongoing work of the Spirit of God living inside of us that changes who we are. It makes us look a whole lot more like God over time. It makes us look a whole lot more like God, right? If you think about just biology for a minute, right? We're not going to get in birds and the bees, I promise. But biology, okay? Oftentimes, children take on the characteristics and traits of their parents, don't they? I can remember when I, was, when I was a kid, my mom showed me a picture one day. And she said, do you know who this is? And I looked at it and I thought, well, it's a black and white picture. That's a little weird. But I don't ever remember having that haircut or that shirt, but it sure looks like me. And she said, oh, it's your dad. It's your dad. And I remember kind of being embarrassed in that moment because at that point in my life, I did not want to look anything like my dad, right? No 12-year-old does. Let's be real. But this is normal, right? Kids often take on the traits of their, their parents. We have things that we look alike, right? I, my dad has more hair than me, actually, right? But there's still some similarities. We take on the traits. And, and when it says that we have been called children of God, John is reminding us that there is not just a new name that we've been given, but there is a spirit within us that's conforming us further and further and further into the image of Christ. He doesn't make us physically look like him. He makes us look like him in character. He changes us. He changes who we are. The spirit of God comes alive and goes to work in us and it, and it renews us and it changes us and, and it moves us. And, and if I'm being real, I don't always feel like that work is making progress. You know, Christian in the room. And sometimes it's hard for us to see this, isn't it? It's hard for us to see this because we're caught up in the daily grind. We're focused on the minute or the hour or at most the day. We don't ever see the bigger, larger thing that God is doing in us. You know, this is why over time, right, if you've ever done this with your kids, maybe you have like a board on your wall or you do it on like a door frame where you mark their height, right, and you measure them every year, maybe every six months or whatever, right? At some point it probably wears out and you stop doing it, I know. We start these things really good. We have good ideas when we have kids, 
right? And then whether it's by the fourth one or by the time they're four years old, you just stop doing all of it, right? But you, you start marking their height, right? Because over time, we want to see how much they've grown. Well, you don't see that in a day. You don't see that in a week. Right? This, this newer phenomenon, right, of people posting pictures of their belly bump when they're pregnant, women, right? I'm not, I don't know. I'm not, I shouldn't say anything about that. It's okay if you want to do it, but when else in the history of the world has it been good for a woman to show everybody that her belly's getting bigger? I just don't understand it, right? Anyway, um, my point is this. We like to see progress, right? We like to see progress. We love to see progress. And because of that, when we look at the Christian life, the, the pursuit of holiness in our lives, sometimes we're super discouraged because we can't see the progress, Here's what I want to encourage you to do on a super street level, practical level. If that's you, if you've struggled with that going, man, I just don't see holiness growing in me. I want to encourage you to take the next month or six months or year and commit to journaling. To journaling. Writing down what you're praying for. Write down the struggles that you're having. Write down the things that God is teaching you. Write down the things that you're seeing God do. And then a month in, and then two months in, and then six months in, look back on those things. Look back on those. Take more of a, a we won't call it a 30,000-foot view, but a 10,000-foot view of what God has been doing in you. And I assure you that if you are truly pursuing holiness, if you're abiding in Christ, that you will see fruit of growth in your life. And you'll be able to celebrate it. We're so tunnel vision, we're so focused on the moment that we oftentimes as Christians don't see the larger work that God is doing in us. But he's working. And he's promised that by his spirit, he will continue to renew us. Next week, hopefully, by the grace of God, if we can, I'm planning to go see my parents in Florida. We're taking our kids down to go see um, my parents. We haven't seen since Christmas, okay? I guarantee when we walk in the room, my mom's gonna go, oh, they've grown up so much. Hopefully she doesn't say it about me. <laughs> She's going to notice because she hasn't seen it in a while. We've got to step back to see the larger work that God is doing in our lives. Some days we do take steps backwards. But if the general trajectory is movement towards becoming like Christ, that's the goal. That's the pursuit of holiness. It might look like this as we graph it, but the trajectory should be like this becoming more and more and more like Jesus, being changed more and more and more by the Spirit of God, abiding more deeply and deeply and deeply in Christ day by day. Because if we're going to be holy in the meantime, we must be pursuing that holiness, knowing that it's God who gives us the motivation to pursue it, but it's His Spirit who is doing a work in us as we change. And here's the deal. God doesn't just save us and then sit back, cross His fingers and go, Hope it works out for him. Hope she figures it out along the way. No, he gives us his spirit. And he continues to work in us. But then he comes alongside of us and says, get your tail up and start running after me. This is why 2 Peter 1 says, make every effort to supplement your faith, which is a gift of God, with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, perseverance, brotherly love, affection. Pursue these things. Make every effort to chase after holiness is what he's saying. God will give you everything you need. Chase him, chase him, chase him. He's called us not just to be committed to abide in him. 
He's called us to, to additionally to be confident as we think about the end time. But he's called us to holiness in the meantime. To holiness in the meantime. I want to look briefly at these last few verses of this text. We're going through verse 10, and I want to read 7 through 10 in a sense kind of just as a summary for us this morning. It says this, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, right? It's not just us abiding in God. He's abiding in us by spirit, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, which is really a transition statement into some of what we'll talk about next week. And as we look at this, much of what we're seeing right here is, is what we may even call sort of a paternity test. <laughs> right? He says, this is how you know who you belong to. This is how you know who your father is. This is how you know if you can be committed for a lifetime. This is how you know if you can have confidence in the end time. This is how you know that your pursuit of holiness in the meantime isn't just you spinning your wheels. This is how you know. What does your life look like? What does your life look like? What you do will show who you are. He says, if you make a practice or a habitual lifestyle of sin, it is evidence that you are not committed, that you can't have confidence, and you're not pursuing holiness. But if you see this practice, this consistency of, of moving towards Christ, if you step back and see the trajectory of becoming more and more like Christ, as you see that play out in your life, you can grow in your confidence. You can grow in your commitment. You can grow in your pursuit of holiness. He's saying that you have to understand who you belong to. And the best way to know that, the best way to have confidence, the best way to have commitment, the best way to have holiness, to pursue holiness, is to know who you belong to. Because here's the deal. If we want to live today in light of eternity, we have to understand that that eternity is not built on us. It's built on Christ. And if we are not Christ, eternity is not ours. And I think sometimes we become so, again, we're so focused on moments, on minutes, on hours, on days, that eternity is something that is so far-fetched to us. I heard eternity described this way one time. If you were to empty the largest ocean, which is the Pacific Ocean, I believe, and if you were to fill it with sand to the height of the highest mountain, which is Mount Everest, I think, According to Google and Alexa and all those people, that's, that's who it's the tallest one. If you were to fill it with sand to that height, and a bird came and took one grain of sand, one every hundred billion years, the length of time it would take to empty that ocean of sand, then we're beginning to understand the magnitude of eternity. 
these 60 to 80 years we've got, some at best, seem so small. This is why James would say life is just a vapor, a mist. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. But here's the deal. God's called us to something significant in these moments. He's given us a reason to be committed to him in our lifetime, to abide in him, to continue in him, to remain in him. He's given us a reason for confidence as we think about the beginning of eternity, the doorway to eternity that we will stand in. And he's given us a reason to pursue holiness in these moments. And it's all built upon the work of Jesus. Not the work of my hands. It's built upon the work of Jesus Christ. And here's what I would say to you today. If you think about eternity and all you can think about is, is singing and wearing a robe and floating on the clouds, you're missing the imagery of eternity that the Bible gives us, which is a glorious picture, but only for those who have trusted in Christ because Christ is there. But friends, hear me. If your hope is not in Jesus, then these 60 to 80 years are the best you get. It's the best you get. And eternity But if eternity, my eternity is secured by the work of Jesus Christ, I got a reason to go hard in these 60 to 80 years. I got a reason to go, go after it in these 60 to 80 years. I got a reason to be committed to the Lord. I've got a reason to have confidence when I think about standing before the Lord. I've got a reason to pursue holiness in this life because tomorrow is secure. See, if tomorrow's secure, today can be the most significant day of your life. We ought to live today in light of the last day by being committed for this lifetime, being confident as we think about the end time and pursuing holiness in this lifetime. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning that nothing that we could do or say would ever be enough to impress you or to please you or to convince you that we're great. <laughs> God, what we know is that everything that is good in us is a gift from you and everything that is good that you've called us to requires our trust in you, our, our confidence in you, our hope in you. It requires us to grow in our desire for you, but our understanding of what you've done and what you have promised. So God, I pray that for the believer in this room, Lord, that we would seek your holiness, that we would seek your nearness, that we would seek your grace and your mercy, and that we would bask in it, that we would bathe in it, and that it would change how we live today. God, I pray that we would live today in light of eternity, that we would live now knowing that you have bought us. But God, for those in this room who have not understood the saving work of Jesus Christ in their own lives, Lord, I pray that you would stir in them even now to see that chasing good living is not going to get them life. But life will only be found by looking back onto the work of Christ so that they can look forward with confidence. So God, would you stir in them even now? a need for you, a desire for you. But God, for those of us that have trusted in you, would you move in us to grow our commitment and our confidence and our pursuit of holiness. 
God, would you work in us even now? It's in the name of Christ that I pray. Amen. The church family, this morning, as we think about holiness, it's right that we would approach the Lord's table. You know, you should have gotten one of these cups as you came in. And as we turn our attention to celebrating communion, you know, the Bible calls us to consider our lives, to consider ourselves, to consider our walk with the Lord individually as we approach this table, as we approach communion. Because as we do it, we're remembering the work of Christ. And so it's a reminder for us, not just what Christ has done, but what our pursuit of holiness looks like. This morning, I want to remind you what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians 11, there's a description of what happened that last night before Jesus was arrested. And it says that he was gathered together with his disciples. And it says that he he took the bread that they had to eat that night, that meal. And it says that he broke it in half and he served them with it and said to them these words, This bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. Because I'm going to be tortured, he said. I'm about to get murdered. And every time that you participate in this meal, I want you to remember the breaking of my body that's necessary to buy you back. And he said to them, as often as you do this, I want you to remember me. Now, before we participate in this, I want to just remind you that This is a practice he gave to the followers of Jesus. He dismissed one before doing this because it was only for the followers of Jesus. And so today I would say to you that there's there's two places, two reasons why the Bible gives us to hold off on taking communion. One is if you've not trusted in Jesus, he says that you actually eat and drink judgment upon yourself by participating in this. The other is, in that same text, the context of an unworthy manner is also attached to them having disunity in the body broken relationships in the body. He says, if you participate in communion while you have a broken relationship with someone in the body, you too are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And so today, before we go forward, I want to give you a moment to think about where you're at, to consider your pursuit of holiness, your relationship with the Lord. Is it real? Your relationships in the body before we go any further. So let's take a moment right where you are and consider those things. God, we recognize that as we come to this table, you have called us to remember you often. And so in these moments, God, may that be what we do. May we remember your body broken and your blood shed. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Again, the Bible says that on the night that Jesus was arrested, that he took that bread, he broke it, he served the disciples, and he said to them, this represents my body, which would be broken for you as often as you eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. The Bible says that he then took the cup, the chalice, this cup, and he passed it around to them, and he said, this represents the blood that I'm going to shed, because very soon I'm going to be on a cross. I'm going to have a crown of thorns shoved on my head that will cause blood to come down my face. I'll sweat drops of blood, and just the previous day he had done this. It says that, that, that he would be pierced in his hands and his feet and in his side, bleeding 
Because the Bible says that without the shedding of innocent blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so he said to them similarly that night, as you drink of this cup, you are reminded of the blood that was shed to pay for your sin. And he says likewise, as often as you drink of this cup, you do so in remembrance of me and my blood. You know, the Bible says that, that, that we're not to remain in a place of just consideration as we celebrate communion, but that we're to move to a place of celebration, that we should be moved to, to celebrate the work of God in your life. And here's what I want to say to you. Some of you today, you've got a reason to celebrate because you're remembering the work of Christ or there's great things happening around you outside of this place in your life. Some of you are struggling to find a reason. But I will tell you, if you trusted in Christ, you have a reason to look back on the work of Christ and to celebrate today. And so my hope is in these moments that you would celebrate. But I will tell you this, that if you don't, you feel like you don't have a reason to today, we want to talk with you. We'll be out the door here as we wrap up. And we'd love to talk with you about what's going on in your life. My hope is that in the coming weeks, the, the deacon ministry that we just launched last week is still being co- sort of, people are being assigned, families are being signed. We make sure people are cared for by people to some degree that they know and things like that. But over the next several weeks, you're going to be getting calls from our new deacons. And as you receive those calls, you're going to be having the opportunity to share with them what's going on in your life, to celebrate those things that are great, to work through those things that are difficult and painful. In this moment, though, this morning, church, I want us to stand together. And let's move from consideration to celebration. Can we do that, church? Amen. Let's stand together and sing.